um, well, for those of you who who uh, are are just starting watching the recording, um, I am Wes Hill. I teach New Testament at a seminary in West Michigan. We're right on the lake um, in a place called Holland, uh, Western Theological Seminary. Um, I am a priest in the Episcopal Church, and I have a connection to a, a really vibrant church in Dallas. Uh, I'm there probably eight Sundays out of the year and um, worshiping here in Michigan otherwise. Uh, and yeah, I, I've thought a lot about this theme of hope for a variety of personal reasons and theological reasons. And when Kevin invited me to be part of this tonight, I I jumped at the chance. I, I think hope is uh, something I'm in need of, and I imagine you feel that you are in need of uh, tonight as well. So um, as Kevin said, I'd like to talk for a few minutes, and um, I'll be referring to several different passages from Scripture. So if you have a Bible handy and want to follow along or, or jot down the references to look up later, um, and then I think there will be some time at the end for us to have some Q&A uh, as well. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here tonight. I I know that uh, after several years of doing this on Zoom, we're all probably fatigued in some ways, but it's a joy to to be with you and to uh, engage with you in this way. So I'd, I'd like to uh, start off by talking about how um, there are a number of different ways that our culture and our society thinks about what it means to be hopeful. And I think that a lot of us, and this this is true whether we're Christian or, or belong to a different religion, whether we're conservative politically or progressive, wherever we fall in the spectrum of American life, I think a, a, a myth, a, a story that we like to tell ourselves is that history is progressing in an upward direction. Um, certain critics and writers have talked about this myth of progress that so many of us tend to believe in. Um, you know, I just I just uh, jotted down in my notes some of the campaign slogans that I've heard over the years. You know, uh, a certain popular progressive candidate spoke about change we can believe in. Uh, notice it's not change for the worse. It's change for the better. Uh, history is brighter. Um, there was a campaign a few years ago uh, built around the idea that it gets better. Uh, things are moving forward. Um, we may face some setbacks, but fundamentally, we're part of a story that is about optimism. Uh, famously, uh, a more a more conservative candidate ran on a slogan called Make America Great Again, sort of reaching back to a past ideal and saying, this is going to be our future. And we, we tend to love these kind of narratives of, of things getting better with time as time goes on. Uh, President Obama said in one of his uh, talks, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice, obviously echoing Dr. King uh, there. And this is a story that a lot of us uh, want to believe in, but we find ourselves also doubtful about it because we know from our own experience that things don't always get better. Change doesn't always seem possible. And we often uh, find ourselves progressing in a certain way, but regressing in other areas of our lives. And so the kind of neat onward march, you know, always improving, always uh, gaining, 
always uh, moving in a in a helpful direction, I think that can be hard to sustain. And so a lot of us feel, uh, I'll, maybe I'll speak for myself, kind of bombarded at times by the relentless optimism that we're expected to embrace as Americans, the kind of uh, relentless smile that we're expected to plaster on our faces, even in the midst of uh, great disappointment and sorrow. And uh, you won't be surprised, I think, to hear me say tonight, I think the Christian vision of hope is profoundly different than that. Christianity is not simply about offering a uh, a slogan or a an advertisement or uh, a neat formula for success and for things always improving and getting better. I think Christian hope is ultimately deeper than that, richer than that, and it allows us to be more realistic about the true nature of our lives. We don't have to pretend that things are always improving. We don't have to always um, you know, stitch a smile under our face before we show up at church on Sunday. Um, Christian hope is, is something more robust than just optimism about the future. And so that's what I'd like to talk about tonight. What, what is the Christian vision of hope? And I think the first point I'd wanna make is that Christianity is a religion that understands human life as a story. Now you may you may take that for granted. Um, you know our lives have a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's a there's a kind of plot to our lives. There's an arc to the the history of of the world. But that's that's not obvious to a lot of people. Uh, a lot of other world religions think much more in terms of cycles. You know um, we're we're sort of um, not ever making any progress. We're kind of going back to the beginning, but Christianity says otherwise. Christianity says the world has been loved into being by God. It's been created. It's not eternal. And it's moving somewhere. It's moving toward uh, a climax that God promises will be good, in which we'll be raised from the dead, uh, tears will be wiped away, and all things will be made new. Um, it's a story that we belong to. And I think that human beings, whether we are willing to acknowledge it or not, we long for a happy ending. We know deep in our gut that we are in a story, but many of us can't see how the ending could ever be satisfying. Uh, there are too many painful elements of the story to seem like it could ever reach resolution. Um, I, I was actually just talking to one of my students uh, a couple days ago about The Sound of Music, one of my favorite movies. Uh, my mom took me to this when I was a child. Uh, it had come back to the uh, the theater. Uh, I think I heard one of you say Arkansas earlier. So I'm from Arkansas. So we we, we went to um, <laughs> we went to uh, a movie theater in in Little Rock, Arkansas, and saw The Sound of Music. And, you know, it was very long for a young boy, but it was also pretty enthralling. But I was talking to my student and she said that she uh, when she watched it as a child, it was two VHS tapes. Now, the younger folks on the call may not remember VHS tapes, but um, uh, uh, so the sound of music was so long that there were there were two of them. And somehow or another, she didn't know that there was a second one. And so she watched the first one, which ends, if you know the story, 
this this wonderful governess uh, or nanny uh, named Maria, played by Julie Andrews. Um, she uh, she comes to this family, the Von Trapp family, and she she works as their nanny. But she finds herself falling in love with their father, who is a single man. And this scares her. Uh, it kind of discombobulates her and she decides to leave um, and, and, you know, is sent away. And my student said for the longest time, she thought that was the ending of the story. <laughs> and she she said, you know, this is pretty this is pretty sad. This is pretty unsatisfying. And we talked about how there's something inbuilt into us that wants the resolution we want to believe that the, the threads of our lives are going to somehow make sense, that it's all going to be woven together in some way. Uh, and I would say, as a, as a believer in God, who is the creator and maker of all things, that, that that's hardwired into us by our creator. Uh, we long for the resolution of the story because we were made that way. We were made for hope. Um, so what I would like to uh, to do tonight. Um, so I, I'm in the Episcopal Church now, but I have not always been. I grew up in the Baptist world. And uh, if you know anything about Baptists, uh, they love sermons that have three points that all start with the same letter. Um, and uh, so I'm going to give you I'm going to give you three points uh, about hope tonight that are all going to start with P. Um, so I want to talk about um the the idea of uh, resolution uh, or progress or or moving toward a climax that we all are longing for i want to suggest that that is in fact promised to us by god the ending of the story is promised to us by god i also want to say secondly that as we move toward that conclusion we are involved in protest protest about the way the world is now. We're not satisfied with the world as it currently exists. We are longing for a better world. So as we wait for what's promised, we protest. And then finally, I think that our um, our belonging to this story, our uh, giving ourselves over to the hope of the happy ending of the story involves our participation in God's work in the world. We aren't just bystanders. We aren't just kind of passively waiting to see, you know, how is this all going to turn out? No, we are actually characters in the story who have a role to play. We participate uh, in the story of hope. So that's kind of my, my outline for tonight. And I want to talk first about the promise. And uh, I want to, I want to direct us to a couple of different um, biblical texts. And the first ones are from Isaiah. So Isaiah is a very long, um, very complicated book, um, probably written over several um, eras of Israel's history. It, it has one name attached to it, Isaiah, but in fact, it was probably written by several different prophets and um, kind of spanning the time in Israel's existence when Israel was uh, facing the prospect of defeat, uh, of going into exile. And then after having gone into exile, wondering, is there any hope on the other side? Is there any future for us after we've been removed from our, our land? And um, sort of early in the, or earlier, I should say, in the book, in chapter um, uh, 35, uh, this is what the prophet says. 
Uh, so this is Isaiah chapter 35, uh, verses 1 to 10. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is this is one of those purple passages, as they're sometimes called in the Bible, which are just so rich with the imagery of hope. Um, you know, burning desert landscapes turned into fertile gardens, um, roads that you would be afraid to walk on because of predators. Now they're suddenly thronging with with happy crowds, you know, singing songs. This is an image of of uh, new life after death, uh, of of new hope after exile, after undergoing uh, a cursed uh, nomadic existence. And then at the very end of the book, the very, very end of Isaiah, um, in chapter 65, we get this just beautiful passage. And I'll just read this one as well. This is verses 17 through 25. God says, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. 
For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. These are beautiful words, beautiful poetry. Um, but I'll tell you all, I remember uh, a moment. It's funny, the the, the things you remember. Uh, I can remember a moment. I was probably 17 years old, and I was reading a popular Christian writer that some of you may have heard of named Dallas Willard, who I have a lot of respect for. And uh, Dallas Willard uh, quoted some of these passages that I just read. And he said, you know, it really doesn't matter what religious tradition you belong to. You you have to recognize this poetry, this beautiful poetry is just a human treasure. And I can remember thinking, you know, on one on the one hand, I agree with that. It, this is this is literarily gorgeous. You know, this is wonderful poetry. But if it's just if it's just kind of a testimony to what humans aspire to or hope for, you know, it's not worth all that much. I mean, it's it's art. It's lovely. It's it's worth memorizing. But if it's not if it's not giving us a promise from God, then it's ultimately sort of a band aid on the wounds that we feel. It needs to be more than just literature. It needs to be more than just beautiful poetry. It needs to be our anchor because we believe that it's coming to us from God Himself. God is the one who says, "I'm going to make the desert a place of." of springs of water. I'm the one who's going to allow the wolf to lie down with the lamb. I'm the one who's going to reverse the conditions of the fallenness of the world. And I am going to restore and redeem and remake the world. So hope is ultimately not just about thinking, you know, gosh, I hope things turn out okay in the end. I don't know how they will, but I just kind of hope they will. No, hope is about kind of anchoring yourself to a word from outside of your own mind and heart, a word that comes to us from God, a promise that we can cling to. So that's the first point. I think hope is, is ultimately not the same thing as optimism. It's not just kind of keeping your fingers crossed or knocking on wood. It's, it's kind of binding yourself to God's word and saying, even though it doesn't look like it, I'm going to trust God to bring about uh, a good ending to this human story that I'm part of. And ultimately, of course, that that word from God comes to its, its climax on Easter Sunday, right? When God says, even death itself is not going to be a barrier to my remaking the world. Even death itself, the death of Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, is going to be reversed. And along with his resurrection comes all of ours. So the second point, what this allows us to do then, if we have that hope, if we anchor ourselves to God's promise of a new world, that allows us to be appropriately critical of the present world. We can protest the present world. This is why Christians have traditionally been on the front lines of things like civil rights movements, 
Um, think about how it was the it was the hope of um, you know God is at work to bring justice in the world that allowed people to say, "I'm going to take the risk of stepping out into a dangerous neighborhood and and protest for what I believe is true." Or think about what we do when we pray. Uh, Kevin mentioned I, I just recently wrote a little book on the Lord's Prayer. And I thought a long time about those words when we say, thy kingdom come. What are we doing when we say that? The first thing we're doing, I think, is we're acknowledging the kingdom has not yet come in the way we want it to. There's still poverty. There's still cancer. There's still depression. There's still addiction. There's still death, ultimately. So we're we're sort of setting ourselves against the world as it is now. And we're saying, God, we want you to bring about a better world. We're, we're protesting the way things are at present. And I just want to read you a, a couple of words here from uh, a theologian. I believe he's still living. His name is David Wells. He taught at Gordon-Conwell uh, Theological Seminary in Boston for many years. Um, but listen to what he says about prayer. And he talks specifically here about petitionary prayer, where, where we bring petitions to God you know, God help my niece as she faces that surgery. Uh, you know, God help my neighbor as he is uh, about to have to file for bankruptcy. Um, you know, we're petitioning God on behalf of the world. And this is what Wells says. What then is the nature of petitionary prayer? It is, in essence, rebellion. <laughs> rebellion against the world in its fallenness the absolute and undying refusal to accept as normal what is in fact pervasively abnormal. It is the refusal, petitionary prayer is the refusal of every agenda, every scheme, every interpretation that is at odds with the norm as originally established by God. As such, when we pray, it is an expression of the unbridgeable chasm that separates good from evil. The declaration that evil is not a simple variation on the good, but rather evil is the antithesis of the good. Or, he says, to put it the other way around, to come to an acceptance of life as it is, to accept it on its own terms, which means acknowledging this is always the way it has been always the way it's going to be, is to ultimately surrender a Christian view of God. This resignation, this sort of making our peace with what is abnormal, has within it the hidden and unrecognized assumption that the power of God to change the world, to overcome evil with good, won't actually be realized. And then he says this, Petitionary prayer only flourishes where we believe two things. So if we want to be people who pray and, and bring our intercessions to God, we have to believe two things. First, that God's name is hallowed too irregularly. His kingdom has come too little and his will is done too infrequently. That's the first belief. Secondly, we have to believe that God himself can change this situation. Petitionary prayer is the expression of the hope that life as we meet it now, on the one hand, can be otherwise, and on the other hand, that it ought to be otherwise. To pray is to say that God 
and God's world are at cross purposes. I think that's really helpful. So think about, maybe think right now of someone you care about that you're praying for, you're asking God to show up in their life. I, I have someone who is undergoing profound mental health, uh, a, a mental health crisis right now. And what I'm doing when I pray is I'm saying, God, this is not okay. I don't ever want to make my peace with what my friend is going through. I don't want to say, well, it could be worse. I don't want to say, well, this is just the way the world is. I want to say, no, God, this is not what you want for my friend. This is not your will for this person. And so I'm going to pray and ask you to change it, to show up and intervene. I'm going to protest against the world as I find it. So Christianity is is not ultimately a, a similar to Buddhism, where we simply try to kind of come to a, a, a almost like a stoic kind of uh, um, resignation to the suffering of the world. Well, this is this is this is the world, and I just have to kind of bear it. No, Christianity says because we have a promise from God, because God raised Jesus from the dead, because we know that this world as it is now is not the world as it's going to be. We can live in tension with the world as we find it now. We can we can pray and ask God that things would be otherwise than they are right now. We're in a sense we're we're authorized to do that. We're permitted to do that by the story that we belong to. And that brings me to my last point. So we 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 bank on the promise. We protest the present, but then we also participate with God in bringing about the new world that God wants, the new world that God has promised. I've always found it really interesting that, um, so that there's there's one place in the New Testament where Paul talks extensively, the Apostle Paul talks extensively about the resurrection of the dead. And uh, of course, by that, he does not mean just kind of going to heaven when we die and our spirits or our souls are kind of floating around on clouds somehow, or maybe we're just, you know, thoughts in the mind of God. No, he's talking about like our actual bodies. These, these bodies that we've lived in here on earth are going to be made new, raised from the dead, uh, just like Jesus' body was on Easter Sunday morning. And Paul goes into huge, long detail about this in 1 Corinthians 15. And, you know, he, he, he kind of ends with this triumphant statement, oh, death, where is your sting? You know, we often read this at funerals. You know, death is not going to have the last word. Death is going to be defeated. But then, then he gets to the very end of this chapter, and this is how he ends it. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. I wonder how you would, if you were writing about the hope of the resurrection of the body, you know, life after death, how would you end it? I don't think I would have ended it that way. But Paul seems to be saying, if you have that kind of hope, if you believe death is not going to have the last word, death has been defeated, there is going to be a, a cosmic Easter Sunday for the whole world, well then, now you can you can devote yourself to working in the presence, working in the here and now, abounding in the work of the Lord, 
because you know that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. In other words, Paul's saying you can participate even now. We don't yet see the resurrection. One day we will, but even now, in advance, we can start, uh, I forget who says this. One theologian said, it's as if we're the ones um, uh, crafting and and baking in the kiln, the building bricks of, of the new world that God is building. We, we, are, we are sharing with God in the work of preparing for the new world that we believe is to come. Listen to these uh, words from one of my favorite uh, theologians, Richard Baucom. He says, Christianity is a faith which is essentially forward-looking and forward-moving, orientated towards and living now, ever in the light cast backwards by God's promised future. And then he says, the way that we, in the here and now, try to live into God's future, to try to try to anticipate it. He says, we participate in scattered acts of recreative anticipation. We participate in small scale acts of resistance to the world as it is now in the hope of the world as it will be. I love that. Small scale acts of resistance. And it can be as simple as I mean, I, I was profoundly moved once when a friend of mine, uh, she, at a at a tragically young age, had an aggressive form of leukemia, and it seemed like almost overnight she ended up in the hospital. And one of my friends, who was a friend of hers, um, uh, brought in uh, a, a prayer book. So my friend was a a priest, uh, an Episcopal priest, and she she loved the prayer book. And my friend brought in a prayer book, and. Um, he brought one in for Martha and we opened it up together there in the hospital room and we prayed together from the book of common prayer. She was able to rub her fingers over those pages that she loved so much. Someone else had brought in a vase of gorgeous flowers that were there in the window. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, those are tiny little acts. I mean, they, they weren't enough to save her from leukemia, but what they were was they were small scale acts of resistance to say to death, and leukemia, you don't have the last word here. You may win the battle, but you're not going to win the war. Uh, and we're gonna we're gonna push back symbolically on the on the hopeless forces of cancer and death. We're gonna we're gonna bring beauty into this hospital room. Or you, you think about you know the my my dad has has gotten involved in his retirement in a work of helping lead a Bible study at a at a drug and alcohol redic, uh, addiction recovery center. And um, he's he's told me how um, kind of burdensome it has felt to him when some of the guys that he's invested in have have kind of lapsed back into their old patterns of addiction. But I think what he's also discovered, what I've what I've heard him articulate as he's talked about this, is that you know he doesn't have control of the outcome. He can't guarantee that any of these men that he's working with is going to somehow you know get their life together. But what he can do is, is share in these, these small scale acts of compassion and care and attentiveness to these folks in a way that says the present is not all there is. Um, this, this dismal world that we're in right now is not all there is. There's a new world coming 
And we can be those who are just waving little flags, you know, putting up little tiny signposts, um, trying to give some kind of preview of the world that we believe is coming. And we don't do that, of course, in our own uh, feeble efforts at just being cheerful or being optimistic. We do it because we're holding on to this promise that because of Jesus, God, God has committed himself to the world. In fact, God has God has become one of us. Um, Jesus is the face of God sharing with us in our life of sorrow and promising us that he will bring us out of it. So friends, this is my encouragement to us tonight that we, that we hold on to that promise of a new creation. This world is not all there is. There's a new world coming that we allow ourselves in light of that to protest, to name the areas of life that are not okay. We don't just make our peace with those things. We protest. And at the same time, we participate in God's ongoing work of bringing healing and mercy and forgiveness and kindness and beauty uh, to a world that's been that's been wrecked by sin and death. So um, I'm so excited that you're doing a series on hope. I think it, it's it's right at the heart of what we are about as Christians. It's right at the heart of the good news we we profess. And um, I, I will be praying for you as you go along. I'm I'm honored to be here to help kick it off, and I hope that it it does indeed fortify your hope and and build you up and make you more ready to participate in God's God's work in the world. So thank you so much, and I'm happy to uh, to have some dialogue now. Hmm. Thank you, Wes. That was that was really encouraging and really rich. Yeah, the awkward Zoom applause, but that no one can hear. But yeah, we're grateful. Um. Yeah. So if you all have um some questions, we have some time, and you can interact with Wes some around what's on your mind. And if, you, if you're um, shy of speaking, feel free to type into the chat too. I have a question. Um, what do you think it looks like? I, I love this idea of this promised new world, but at the same time, when you, when you read Revelation, you realize there's some pretty ugly things that precede that. Um, how do you hold both of those things in your mind? Like, I just feel so overwhelmed about like the situation in the Middle East and realizing that I don't know what God's plans for that are, if that's just outside of his will or for something he's allowing. And like, that's so big and heavy. And how do you hold that in one hand? And then this hope for, you know, some future, you know, maybe, maybe a long time from now where it's all resolved and beautiful. I think one of the key ways for me has been giving up on the project of somehow finding a satisfactory theology of, of evil. So uh, you, you may know there, sorry, my dog is uh, trying to get in the picture here. This is, this is Carl Bark, uh, my, my dog, cause I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a nerd. So I named my dog after my favorite theologian. Uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that there's a style of Christian thinking, um, theodicy is the technical term for it, that says, you know, we somehow have to be able to say, well, God must have a reason for wanting this number of Palestinians or this number of Israelis to be, 
killed and it's all going to make sense in the grand scheme of things. And I just think Christians can say, no, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to make sense. I don't think my job is to somehow give a, a rationale for it that makes it okay theologically or somehow get God off the hook for it. My responsibility is to lament, to, to say, this is, this is, my mind cannot conceive of how this could be in any way, you know, satisfactorily resolved. There's just too much suffering. And so the, the, I guess I'm, maybe this is a roundabout way of saying, I I don't think the Christian uh, project that I have to take on is somehow um, to, to get it, to get it sorted out in my mind. I, I think, I think my project is to lament, to say, God, how long, you know, won't you show up? This is not okay. And to believe that somehow, um, and, and, and I don't say this as, as just passively waiting for this to happen. Like, like I was saying, we, we participate, we share in the, uh, the work of, of, of doing this, but somehow, um, expecting that God's mercy will, will overwhelm and transform a situation that is manifestly not good. Um, I, yeah, I, I just want us to get away from the idea of, think, of thinking somehow because we believe in God, even things that look bad must secretly be good, you know, because God is sovereign, God's working it out. I, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a helpful way to think about it. Um, Pastor Kevin may have other other things to add there. I'm not sure. I don't have I don't have other things to add, Wes. I, I thought that was really helpful. We just <laughs> we just finished walking through Ecclesiastes um, as as a congregation, so we were getting we were wrestling with these questions a lot of like when so much of the world doesn't make sense, like how. Yeah, how do you hold on to hope? But um, yeah, some of the protesting and then yeah, realizing that yeah, there are no there are no easy answers about evil. Um, yeah, so that's a good question, John. Other questions for Wes? So I have a question. Some of this you talk about. Go ahead, not go, somebody else. Oh yeah. Let's let's go, Missy, and then Bob. Yep. Um. So. It- Hey Wesley, I actually took a class from you at Regent during during COVID. So oh, it's great. Been a couple of years, but nice to see you again. Nice to see you. Um, actually, I'm not sure I see you on my screen. Let me see if I can oh okay. Get to where uh um oh yeah. Um, so I I was wondering about you know two things about you know the that quote, the arc of the moral, you know, where it spins toward it seems like that could be true because, um, you know, because of the ending that we hold on to. But also, I wonder what you make of like Steven Pinker's book about the decline of violence. I mean, it seems like it could be, it, now, it, you know, a lot of bad things going on right now, but the numbers show overall that, you know, were less violent than we were, you know, in succeeding generations as, as hideous as it is now. And he doesn't say that human nature is improved at all, but the numbers, um, in spite of all the, the evidence, 
Um, it seems like something's happening in human history that's kind of empirically, you know, verifiable. Yeah. No, thank you. And it's great to see you again. Um, yeah, I, 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 I do. I don't think that, um, you know, I mean, Dr. King is the one who um, came up with that image of the, the arc of history bending toward justice. And he's obviously speaking out of a deep well of Christian conviction there that this is not just right. humans are on an upward march of evolution, you know, things are getting better. Uh, this is because, you know, justice is going to win because of God. Uh, mm -hmm. The arc of history bends toward justice because of God. Um, Stephen Pinker's book, for those of you who don't know, he wrote a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, uh, basically kind of arguing in multiple ways um, over the past several hundred years, we can track uh, a decline in in violence, in, in war. But he says very explicitly in that book, he's he's basing his confidence on enlightenment principles of of reason and rationality and our ability to set religion aside uh, which is the source he thinks of so much tribal warfare you know if we could just get rid of of our our religious divisions you know and 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 come together around human reason we can actually achieve together a more equitable society a more peaceful society and of course, he's he's coming at this from a perspective of of no faith in God. I don't think he believes in the existence of God. And um, I it, believe it or not, I actually I went on an internet search this afternoon because I I I remembered. I think it's Alan Jacobs. Alan Jacobs is one of my favorite writers, and I'm pretty sure I remember a review that he wrote of Stephen Pinker's book, saying, um, "You know, this all this." This is this is very encouraging in certain ways, but it ultimately is is kind of based on a flimsy foundation of of, you know, it's it's a it's a confidence in sort of human ingenuity and craft rather than like divine, um, you know, divine promise. So, uh, yeah, I I, I I I probably shouldn't say more, uh, but but I well, was just thinking, like one short follow up to that. Like, couldn't the pagans also benefit from what God's doing in the world. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. So the, like belief isn't necessary to receive some benefit. Sure, sure, yeah. Yeah, which we we tend to call that theologically common grace, you know, not, mm -hmm. not, not saving grace that draws people into relationship, but a common grace that God bestows. You know, Jesus says God causes the rain to fall on the, on the righteous and the unrighteous, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Missy. So, Bob, you have a question? Well, I mean, there's one of the things just kind of following up on it, it seems to me like that that what you talked about there, talking about that it's it's all head knowledge that is bringing this thing about. Uh, and at the same time, I guess from a Christian perspective, I'd look at it that God's changing hearts for people. huh? And it's not just the head thing. It's a matter of there's change in heart too about about what we do and how we do things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, who who is more who's more in touch with God's hopeful purpose? The the person who kind of works out a rational scheme of how this can all ultimately make sense, 
or Mother Teresa, who's actually, you know, getting her hands dirty and and kneeling down and and actually concretely, you know, making the lives of people better. So I, I agree with you. I think there's a there's a there's a um there's an outsized confidence that we can have in rationality to kind of bring about good things and and maybe a, an underconfidence that we have in in terms of service and what what Bauckham calls these small scale acts of resistance. We hate to think about it, but uh, the soil of affliction produces great hope. And it's in places in the world today where affliction seems to be the worst and greatest, strongest, that the church is growing the fastest because it offers that hope. Right. So I, I guess one of the other things to me, when we're talking about this, uh, the participation and some of the hope isn't just pie in the sky of a dessert that we're going to have <laughs> in heaven, huh? No, that's right. I mean, it, when, when I talk about participation, I mean, like in the here and now, we're trying to give some uh, tangible taste of what's coming. You know, we're trying to we're trying to say, hey, let me give you a little preview of what of what's coming. Um, and we do that. We do that by, you know, showing up at soup kitchens or volunteering to tutor children after hours. I mean, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you might say that doesn't matter at all. That does not move the needle hardly a millimeter. But, you know, if we believe that the kingdom is coming, these are these are ways of showing it. But part of our participation is person to person. Right. We talked about bringing the flowers, bringing right. the prayer book to right. someone. I mean, it didn't save her. It right. wasn't a matter that they laid hands on her and they were she was completely healed. Right. At the same time, oftentimes it's we're called to do those little things that are however God's using them about his work, huh? That's right. That's right. Amen. I have a question. Um, Wes, this is Karen. You can find me on your screen. <laughs> I see you now. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just thinking about the protest aspect of hope. Um, and you talked about petitionary prayer being a kind of protest it sounds like lament is a kind of protest um acts some acts of service um i just wonder if you could say a little more about you know how else do we experience protest and and maybe also just piggybacking on what john said i think for myself i i struggle with those moments where you know, some of the things happening, the, the, the injustice and the, um, things that have been going on for so long without visible change. Um, you know, um, not just, you can feel not just hopelessness, but also just very deep anger. Yeah. 
Um, fatigue. And, and so how, you know, kind of feeling that tension of like, I mean, you know, I can, I can get into that place of protest, but it can also lead me to a pretty dark place as well. Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think, and I'm a, I'm a beginner in this, I'm not an expert, but I, I think about the way the Catholic tradition talks about the the contemplative life and the active life. You know, so you'll have people withdraw into monasteries and convents um, to pursue the contemplative life of prayer. You know, we're 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 going to um, kind of hold the world's anguish before God in in our in our sequestered life. And then others are activists. You know, they're they're on the picket lines. They're they're in the clinics. They're, um, you know, they're 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 trying through political means to bring about change. And and I think my understanding of the Catholic tradition is that, um, you know, most of us are not called to choose between those. We need both. Um, and it's if if we're out there on the front lines, we're 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 um, protesting in in the effort to shift the gears to 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 move to move the progress forward. As you say, I mean, that we can quickly burn out and become angry and embittered if we're not also cultivating an inner life of, you know, Lord, my, my identity is not based on my succeeding in this thing. And my hope is not based on my succeeding in this thing. My hope is not the same as optimism. And it may be that my grandchildren will be the ones to see some fruit you know, I may, I may die without seeing what I, what I hope for. So um, balance is probably the wrong word, but, but I do think it's very important for those called to activism to also be cultivating a, a contemplative, you know, to be attending to their inner lives with God and bringing that anger, you know, before God, rather than just bottling it up or, you know, taking it out on other people, but, but, you know, I mean, and the Psalms are a great resource here, you know, you're bringing that anger to God, saying to God, how long are you going to, going to wait? How long before you intervene, you know, and, and voicing that lament and that protest in that way. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's, um, yeah, yeah. It is. that is, thank you. 